Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. for preparing us uh, and I pray after they have helped us to focus that we would listen better um, understand better uh, hear better obey better and most importantly enjoy the Lord Jesus better I think as um, as God would providentially have it we last just last week were in the Galatians chapter 3 where we saw that we actually are united as people uh, things that used to be standing as divisions between us, our gender, our race, our culture, our nationality, all those things in the church are no barrier at all to the unity we can experience truly because actually one thing is true and that is we are actually united in Christ. And today our sermon uh, and our passage is abiding in Christ. So the passage before us today, John chapter 15, verses 4 and 6. We'll have it up on the screen. And I think, sorry, I don't have a a PowerPoint for you, but um, I think there'll be much value in you just having these words in front of you throughout the sermon, so you can, it'll help us stay focused. John chapter 15, verse 4 and 6, are some of Jesus' final parting words to his disciples as he makes his way to the cross. The portion of scripture we will read today is itself a portion of teaching that Jesus gives to his remaining 11 disciples on the Thursday night of Passover week, the nights before his crucifixion. Jesus at this point is staring death in the face, and the horrors of the abuse and rejection he was about to face was weighing down on him. He knew that in less than 24 hours from now, He was going to be hanging, battered, bruised, marred beyond human semblance, in agony on a Roman cross. He knew that in a few hours from now, he would be bearing the sin of the world and facing the full wrath of his father's righteousness in his own body. But you know, even though Jesus was well aware of of the suffering he was about to endure, He still had the greatest of concern for his disciples, and he was not going to miss an opportunity to teach them the things that were most important. It's important to note that at this point, Jesus is with his closest friends and companions, men that have walked with him, lived with him, and ministered alongside him throughout his earthly ministry. But at this point, one of them was missing. We'll discuss the significance of that a little later. 
But now they have just left the upper room and they are making their way toward Gethsemane. And in a very short while later that evening, just before they reached Gethsemane, and just before Jesus prays in agony in the garden, and just before his betrayal and violent arrest, he has his 11 true disciples to himself just one last time. And he needed to impart to them the truths that would carry them through the terrible testing that lay ahead. This is a gloomy time for Jesus and his true disciples. It's about to become much worse than they could have ever imagined. They are in many ways clueless to the fact that they have just entered a season of unparalleled grief and shock. Their whole world and expectations were about to be shattered. I'm not sure they could have even prepared for what was about to happen. However, the Lord Jesus Christ did prepare for them words of comfort. These truths are the truths he wanted his disciples to desperately know because tomorrow, Friday, he was going to be hanging on a cross, pouring out his life. And remember, while Jesus is speaking these words, his heart is just not burdened for the disciples presently with him, but his heart is also still heavy with the anguish of dealing with one of his own who clearly failed to abide with him. John 13.21 tells us Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. With this in mind, let's read how the Savior prepares, comforts, and even warns his disciples. I'll read John from John chapter 15, starting from verse 1, and we'll focus on verses 4 to 6 today. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. These are such heavy, heavy words, yet such tender words, communicating such deep concern for these disciples. And since Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, we can be sure that what Jesus is feeling toward his disciples perfectly matches what the Father is feeling toward these disciples. Jesus not only perfectly communicates the Father's words to us, but the Father's attitudes, his feelings, and his extraordinary love for us. And with the utmost love, Jesus here communicates the utmost truths. This morning I would like to focus on just three truths from our portion of Scripture that Jesus desperately wanted his disciples to grasp, and therefore truths that we must cling to. These three truths I believe Jesus desires for us to know is that One, we must abide in Him. We must abide in Him. In other words, we must remain faithful, continuing in His teachings, trusting in Him, and committing to to walk in His ways, putting on Christ. 
Two, as we abide in Him, we must and will, without exception, bear good fruit. And three, there is a fearful expectation of eternal judgment for the fruitless person, as this person is in fact a false Christian, a false branch, a Judas-type branch. Three points. Abide in Christ. Bear that good fruit. False Christian, beware. This theme of uh, abiding features quite prominently in John. John 15 is in fact the go-to passage if you want to learn about abiding. A little later on we'll see why this analogy of Jesus being the true vine and us being the branches paints such a powerful picture of our absolute dependence on Him, not just for eternal life, but for present fruitfulness. We will begin by devoting some attention to that idea of abiding and then we will gradually build on that. So what does it mean, actually, to abide in Christ? The word abide essentially denotes to remain, to be committed, staying with, not departing from, to continue in, in a certain state, to be fixed, to stand in. All those ideas and more, as we'll see, are bound up in that word, abide. Let's look at a few verses where Jesus uses that word so that we can get a better sense of it. Let's look at John chapter 1. There we have the baptism of Jesus recorded. Listen to verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The word remained there is the very same word, abide. The Spirit stayed with Jesus. This was not a temporary visitation of the Spirit upon Jesus. No, the Spirit would continue to be with Jesus John 11, just before Jesus performed the resurrection of Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. That's John 11, 6. He didn't straight away go to Bethany, but stayed or abided where he was. Another example, John 5, 38. As Jesus is addressing the unbelieving Pharisees, he says... And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus rightfully accuses the Pharisees of not having God's word abiding in them because they did not believe the Father's words. They did not obey him. If scripture was truly abiding in them, they would have known to believe Jesus and to go to him for salvation. So to abide in Christ carries with it the idea of obeying also. Listen to a little more of that same conversation in John 5. Jesus says to this very same Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. That's John 5, 39 and 40. Notice that Jesus is not accusing them of ignorance, Rather, he's accusing them of unbelief. Jesus is saying that these Pharisees did not believe in the Father's words. Therefore, according to Jesus, they were not abiding in God's word. Therefore, knowing without believing, submitting, or obeying is not abiding. 
One last example, John 14, 16. Jesus says this, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. And we know that God's Spirit indeed will never leave us, because Ephesians 4.30 teaches us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You see, as Christians, we don't have the Holy Spirit for a time. It's not a seasonal thing. The Spirit is not with us when we feel close to God and then He checks out when we're not feeling close to God. Or when we're grieving Him by our sin. On the contrary, once you're a believer, God's Spirit remains with you, abides with you. And thereafter, you can never be separated from God. So I give you all these examples because I want to communicate that there are several senses that we can use the word abide. And they are all useful for helping us get a deeper understanding of the concept of abide. Now I want to paraphrase a helpful quote from one commentator. He says this, The former words, abide in me, is an exhortation, a, a strong urging of someone to continue in the exercise of faith and love upon Christ, holding to him in the head, cleaving to him with full purpose of heart, and so deriving life grace, strength, and nourishment from Him. The latter words, I in you, is an encouraging promise that as we abide in Christ, because as Christ is formed in the hearts of people, He continues there as the fountain of all grace. And so, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can we except we abide in Christ. In essence, this is what Jesus is saying. Since you have received my teaching, remain true to me by continuing to hold fast to my teaching, staying committed to my teaching, and then produce the necessary fruit. Just like a branch on a tree draws its life from the tree, so too will Christians draw spiritual life from him, and as a necessary result, bear good fruit. As disciples, he desires for us to make an intentional decision of remaining faithful to his words and being obedient as a result and bear good fruit. If you will, allow me to give you somewhat of an illustration, a simple illustration, but I hope it communicates the essence of abide. So let's say the Lord says to me, make this cup. Make sure this cup, okay, see the cup? Make sure the cup is upright on this stand at all times. Okay. So I have received his word and I know what he requires of me. What does it require of me? Make sure this cup is upright on this stand at all times. And now I continue to meditate upon it. I think deeply about his words. I I preach about it. Isn't God's word so wonderful? It's such wise words because if the cup is here on the stand, someone can fill it with water. I can quench my thirst when I need it. It's so accessible to me and I can offer some of its contents to someone else. It's, it's really such a beneficial command and one that will prove to be a real blessing to me and others. I really believe that God's word and will is perfect for me. I love God so much for giving me his words that guides me and teaches me wisdom. 
I wish more people knew about it. Do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm doing? I'm agreeing wholeheartedly with the wisdom of God. I fully understand what it requires of me. I am able to ponder deeply all the ways His commands are wise and beneficial. I could even preach and teach and command others to obey as well. But do you see that ultimately, I fail to obey. I do not abide in Him. It makes no sense now why God would say, By their fruit you shall know them. Sometimes what people say are unreliable indicators of what they are really like. God says, look at their lives for a clearer picture of what's going on. You know what I should have done, right? I should, just, I should have just made sure this cup, this cup. God tells me, keep. Mm. Obey. Obey. Don't just understand. Don't just claim to know what God says to you. Actually obey. Okay? That, that illustration is for, for me and the kids. Okay. Do you understand now that when I know His word and keep walking in them and continuously obey and fulfill His will is when I am truly abiding. To abide abide means we must produce the works in keeping with what we say we believe. If you keep my commands, John 15.10, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. When Jesus says abide in me, he is saying, not only must we know his words or mentally assent to them, we must believe and obey also. It is also a way of showing our love for him. Knowing Jesus' words alone does not amount to abiding. It's also a way of showing our love. James 1.22 says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, Essentially, if you know God's word and, dis- and disobey, you are self-deceived. If you know God's clearly, clearly revealed will and then live a life contrary to that, you stand in opposition to God. On the other hand, if you know God's clearly revealed will and diligently seek to remain in his will and walk in obedience, then you are abiding in Jesus It's when you know, believe, continue in, and obey his words that you truly abide in Christ. So just on a practical level, how can you possibly know what Christ is teaching you unless you read your Bible, memorize and meditate on scripture, have your personal devotions, attend church, Attend Bible study or biblical courses. Listen to sermons. Read good Christian material. Be in a discipleship relationship. Listen to good Christian music even. Continually exposing ourselves to Jesus' teaching, like in the examples I've mentioned, is like feeding ourselves. It's spiritual nourishment, and it has a cleansing effect on our lives. Jesus even says, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we're approaching our second point. I will again use the words of John from his first epistle to wrap up point one. First John 2, 5, and 6 says this. But whoever keeps my word, in him truly 
the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. We can close out here by simply and powerfully defining abiding in Christ in another way. The one who truly abides in Christ is the one who obeys like Christ. We move on to our second point. But really, point one and point two are so tightly linked, they're actually inseparable. Abiding in Christ has the necessary consequence of producing fruit, good fruit, I must add. They actually go together. Those that abide in Christ will produce good fruit. As we progress through our sermon today, I'm going to use terms like fruit and obedience and good works and godly conduct. And in light of all we're studying today, I'm convinced that all these words are just various ways of describing the same thing. Good fruit. I'm in, I'm in verse 5 now. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see that the one who abides in Christ and remains in his teaching and, and walks as Christ did is the very same one in whom Christ himself is abiding? When you see someone who is clearly living as a Christian, you can safely assume that Christ is living in them. We are so exposed to Christ, so tightly bound to him, that we have that we just have to imitate Him in our lives. We cannot help but be like Christ when the Spirit of Christ lives in us. Christ and the Christian is utterly inseparable, both on the spiritual level because God has enjoined us to the Lord, and in our conduct, in our lifestyle, our obedience, in our good fruit. The spiritual reality of what's going on on the inside will show on the outside. Matthew 12:33 says this. And here we have that fruit analogy again. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. A simple equation. And one who is truly inwardly Christian will be outwardly Christian. You can see it. It's discernible. The Matthew passage is actually in reference to the unbelieving Pharisee. But let's not miss the point of it. As clear as the corrupt fruit of the unregenerate are, so too will the good fruit of the Christian be. It is self-evidence of a Christian. Bottom line, you know what the tree is by the fruit it bears. A tree is known by its fruit. Therefore, the Christian will be known by his good works, his conduct, his obedience, his trust in God, his Christ-likeness, all testify to his true faith. Just remember once more what our point two is. As we abide in him, we must and will, without exception, bear good fruit. The Christian will bear good fruit. This is what I'm trying to actually persuade you of. Now, I'm going to read for you a very powerful verse to, to again try to illustrate that the Christian is so tightly bound to Christ that being a Christian and not bearing fruit is unthinkable. It makes no sense. And it is a denial of the spiritual reality that we are, in fact, united to Christ and He is united to us. 
If you would turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I'll read from verse 20. By no means an unfamiliar passage to us. But try to appreciate afresh the forcefulness of Paul's words here. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus' death here meant Paul's death. Did you get that? Paul just said that he was crucified with Christ. Of course, not his physical body, but his old sinful self, his former self. So now, he is not living his old life anymore, but Christ's life. The old soul is dead. Now Paul is actually, his life is actually Christ's. We bear fruit because Christ is living in us. Our old self is dead, and we live in newness of life because we are bound up in Christ and He in us. If I am a Christian, it is going to show. We don't have a dead spirit living in us, but the spirit of the living God. And He will work in us to produce good fruit. If you're truly connected to Christ, just like the branch is connected to the true vine, you will produce good fruit. As long as you are connected to Christ, bearing fruit is just a normal part of life. Good fruit is the evidence that Christ is truly in us. You cannot be truly united with Him and not be transformed by Him. If you could somehow have a conversation with a, with a branch on a vine and you, you ask that branch, Hey branch, what are you doing here? What's your job? What's your purpose for, for being in this vine? The branch would happily reply, My job is to produce fruit for my master so when he comes around, there is fruit for him to enjoy. And that, friends, sums up the whole reason for our existence. God put us here, connects us with Christ, and his lifeblood is coursing through our veins. He is producing life in us, and it shows in the fruit that we bear. Now quickly, if we are talking about fruit, it will be a bit strange for us to skip over our Galatians passage where it actually defines fruit for us. We all know this one. So we will quickly turn to it. And as you'll see, it complements what we've already been discussing. Paul in Galatians 5, if you'd like to go there. Paul in Galatians 5, verse 22 and following says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now you'll notice that Paul uses the word but at the beginning of that passage. In some translations, you'll find the word now. And from the immediate context of Galatians 5, Paul is actually contrasting what we did while we were non-Christians versus what we do now as Christians. And quite honestly, 
He has made us and is making us into something completely new, unrecognizable from the old self. To borrow from the analogy, we were branches connected to Satan and produced the fruit in keeping with Satan's nature. But now we are branches connected to Christ and produce fruit in keeping with His nature. Amen. Amen. You know, when I am given an opportunity to share the gospel, there's one verse that I always default to, to show people that we are never saved by our own efforts, rather by grace through faith. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what that scripture is in a moment, right? But, and we've been preaching, if, if, well, if you've been coming for the, to this church for even the shortest amount of time, you'll know that we've been preaching and preaching and preaching and we'll continue to preach that we, like Abraham and every redeemed soul, are justified by faith. And that verse really, really helps emphasize that. But that verse continues to emphasize some other very important truths that I admittedly, I confess, I neglected to also emphasize on many occasions. That verse ties in faith to salvation to good works. It's actually a package deal. I'm going to read that verse for you, and after we have read it, you must rightly conclude that true salvation must result in good works. This is non-negotiable. Those that abide in Christ will produce fruit. Let us turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's read verses 8 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2, reading from verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Did you see that? Salvation is not earned. It is a gift which we acquire by faith. Also notice the tense of the word saved. It's past tense. If you truly have faith in Jesus... You are saved. You are already declared righteous. God is not waiting to tally up your good works before he saves you. If you are in Christ, you are saved. And here is the part that I sometimes neglect. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has created you anew in Christ Jesus for good works. We are saved unto good works. You could even say this way, before before God saved us, He already prepared good works for us to do. I must say that also, if you think about it carefully, it also really communicates how important good works are to God, right? God, why did you save me? And God would say, for good works. God, why am am I in a a branch? Why am I a a branch in your vine to bear fruit? And why must you do good works? If God saved you to do good works, then what is the purpose of those good works? 
Listen to John's answer in verse 8 of our chapter. John 15 verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Your fruit, your obedient life, your good works, your godly conduct is a means for you to glorify God and is a faithful witness of you being one who abides in Christ. So what are some examples of fruit or good works that scripture is referring to? Before I mention the fruit specifically, I just want to call your attention to Galatians 5 again. The fruit of the Spirit Paul mentions there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let's call these attitude fruit. These are the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so these, you could say, point to our heart, what's going on in there. They are, they are in a way internal. But these internal attitudes then show up as action fruit. From attitude fruit, we then get action fruit. And so, any good works born out of the attitude fruit because of the Spirit's work, God sees as good fruit because He is producing these ultimately. And really, this can be anything ranging from the praise of your lips that you offer up to God, or an act of kindness for a stranger, to a decision of obedience, and everything in between. Any good deed resulting from the true work of the Spirit in your life, God will count as a good work. From being a faithful, honest worker at your workplace, to acts of hospitality, to evangelism, to acts of service in the church, and honestly, honestly, really, just even your faithful attendance at church counts. Anything resulting from a true love for Christ will all be considered good works. If it doesn't come from a true love of Christ, I think you all know what that is, right? It's called legalism. So again, any good work, anything you do, for the Lord, because you love Him, even the littlest of things, God sees that as good fruit. You know, I see with my own eyes, and I'm so encouraged, and I look and learn so much from so many of you what it looks like to bear good fruit for the Lord. I see so many of you presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, producing fruit in keeping with your salvation, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, Philippians 1.12. James would say, hey, these people are showing their faith by their works. Good works are the proof of one possessing true faith and one who is truly abiding in Christ. Based on the scriptures we have looked at, I would go so far as saying that a fruitless Christian does not exist. There is no such thing. In fact, to be really clear, I'm going to say this way. A fruitless person is in fact a non-Christian. A person who claims to be a Christian but bears no fruit is in fact a false believer. Just bear this in mind. We will address it in our third and final point. 
But I guess at this point, and understandably so, certain questions arise in your mind regarding the fruitfulness of true believers. I get it, I'm, I'm expecting that. You may be thinking, wait a minute, aren't there some believers that are just so new that they, they, you know, they need more time to bear fruit? Or aren't there some Christians who are just not as mature as others and they're still trying to find their feet spiritually? You know, what about those guys? Aren't there some Christians who are just so spiritually immature that you can't see any fruit just yet, you know? So it's, it's wrong for us to make the call that they are false Christians. In response to these and many questions like it, I want to clarify again and say, every Christian will produce good fruit. However, some will produce little fruit, some more fruit, some abundant fruit. There's a spectrum according to God, according to the measure of faith that God has given them. I believe Romans 12 addresses this. We don't have time to go into that. But if you're unsure, wanting to test what I'm saying, test it. Go to Romans 12. But you can look at it this way. There are less fruit Christians, more fruit Christians, and most fruit Christians. Isn't it true? Think about the Christians you know. With some, you look at their lives and there's fruit all over the place. It's just so hard to miss. You look at their lives and every part of it is shouting, good works, good fruit, Christ-likeness. Their whole lives is a testimony of genuine faith and one who is truly abiding in Christ. And then you get those Christians. (laughs) You look at their lives and it's almost like you have to squint and strain to try to notice some fruit. But when you look closely enough, you're like, hey, yes, I saw a fruit. I saw a fruit in that one. You know, not, not a whole lot of fruit, but enough to say this branch is alive. This branch is connected to the vine. We just have to be a little patient with this one. So we have the minimally fruitful Christians and the abundantly fruitful Christians and everything in between. But again, there is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Now, just one slight detour before continuing. It's important to bear in mind, Jesus does prune us. If you're a little fruit Christian, God's going to prune you. If you're a much fruit Christian, God is going to prune you also. And in every case, it's to make you more fruitful. Because he loves you and wants to use you to bring glory to himself. Isn't this the joy of every believer and the chief end of man to glorify God? If you want to motivate a Christian to do good works, just tell them, hey, this glorifies God. And in most cases, that should be enough to get them going. It's not always that simple, but uh, I tell you, it's, it's enough for me. Okay, so we're on to our third point. Before continuing, let's just recap our three points. Okay, One, we must abide in Him by remaining faithful, continuing in His teachings, trusting in Him, committing to walk in His ways, putting on Christ. Two, as we abide in Him, we must and will bear good fruit. And three, there is a fearful expectation of eternal judgment for the fruitless person 
as this person is in fact a false Christian, a false branch, a Judas-type branch. To address point three, I just want to spend a few minutes and make an argument in support of the statement, a non-fruit-bearing person is in fact a false Christian. This is because we have already seen that a true Christian will bear fruit without exception. Therefore, this warning must be for false Christians. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Who is that warning for? I have to say, it was an extremely difficult but an unavoidable conclusion for me to arrive at. I really struggle with this. Because when you look at verse 6, it appears to be saying that those who are in Christ, so Christians, can because of their lack of bearing fruit, be damned. In other words, a Christian, based on his performance, could lose his salvation. But can John be teaching that a Christian can lose his salvation because they bear, fail to bear fruit? Let's read verse 6 again. And you know why I'm struggling with this. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Keep that, keep that in your mind. Keep that warning in your mind. Keep that picture in your mind. It's important. In the minutes we have left, I want to show you from Scripture that the warning given here is in fact for false Christians who are in danger of eternal judgment. But even before that, I want to offer a few reasons why we scripturally, publicly, cannot say that a true believer is in danger of losing his salvation. First, if these warnings were for true believers, then it very much contradicts everything else that scripture teaches about salvation being by grace through faith. And that man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 2.16. If these warnings are to Christians, then what we have here is a works-based gospel, which is no gospel at all. If these warnings are to Christians, then salvation is by human efforts and not divine merit. Therefore, Christ's sacrifice was in vain. If these warnings are to Christians, then according to John's own words in chapter 10, you can read with me, John chapter 10, I'll read from verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If these warnings are to Christians, then we are left with an awkward implication that there is something greater than God that is able to overpower His promise and actually prevent Him from saving those whom He wills to save. The understanding that these warnings are for Christians is a perspective that is incompatible within the book of John and incompatible with the rest of Scripture, which clearly teaches that good works are a result of true salvation and not the basis of salvation. 
I mentioned when commencing this point that it was difficult for me to come to the conclusion that a non-fruit-bearing person is in fact a false believer, and that was because I got hung up on the term in me. You see that, abide in me, I in you, in me. You see that a lot there. But that was my fault for being confused because I was imposing Pauline meaning onto those words here. But when you understand it in context, you see that John, when saying in me, is merely referring to someone who professes to be a follower of Christ. Very, very, very much like Judas. The Pauline meaning of in Christ will later be developed, but John here is not using it in that technical sense, but rather in a general sense to refer to those who claim to be associates of Christ. Now, as a reminder, if we go back to chapter 13, which very much forms the backdrop of the story, John sticks in this very, very interesting verse. It forms the context of this passage, actually. If you would... Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, I'll read verse 2. Listen to this carefully. This is the context. Let's not miss this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. This was when all the disciples were together in the upper room, and here John is telling us that Jesus already knows that he is in the company of true branches and a false Judas type branch. Jesus is not unaware. Remember when Jesus is speaking these words here in chapter 15, it is in the context of one of his own who professed faith but then proved himself to be false. Judas was false. He was a pretender. He did not abide in Christ. He was not real. This is very much part of the context, and we, and we must bear that in mind as we interpret this passage. And back, back to our warning. Since we have argued that Jesus in, in verse 6 could not be addressing true Christians, we are then left with one, only one viable alternative. And that is, the warnings in verse 6 is actually aimed at false Christians, false converts, Judas-type branches, outwardly professing Christians that have not undergone true conversion. Remember again, when Jesus is speaking here, it's in, it's in light of a very, very clear example of one who actually did not abide Now let us see biblically why it is reasonable to understand that the warning in verse 6 is for none other than false Christians. For starters, take a look at Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7. Notice that Jesus is talking about false prophets. Notice also that they do bear fruit, but it's bad fruit. And then notice it's the same type of warning that we see here in our passage. Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, 
every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now listen, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sound familiar? A clear warning to false prophets or false proclaimers who do not bear true or good fruit. Just like every Christian will bear good fruit, so too will false Christians bear bad fruit in keeping with their true nature, in keeping with what type of roots they have. We see a similar scenario in Matthew 12. You may mark it down. And there Jesus is also condemning the falsely religious Pharisees for the bad fruit they produce. You'll find that warning in Matthew 12 verse 33. Another good example is found in Matthew 3. John the Baptist this time is speaking in response to some Pharisees and Sadducees who came to him to be baptized. Listen to Matthew 3 verse 7 and following. Note the parallels again between our passage and Matthew 3. I'll read from verse 7 of Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And listen, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sound familiar? John, being God's prophet, recognized that these Pharisees and Sadducees did not come to be baptized because they repented. No. They were just trying to flee the wrath to come. They understood from the Old Testament that the coming of the Lord was a time of righteous judgment. For those of you who are taking notes and you want to know what Old Testament passage the Pharisees were scared of, this one, Psalm 96 verse 13, Zephaniah 2, 1 and 2, Malachi 3, 2. So they thought, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they thought they could go through this external ritual and they'll be off the hook, spared from judgment. But John was not going to let them get away with a false, distorted view of baptism and demanded that they repent and bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And he issues the very same warning we see in our passage. So we see that the warnings to falsely religious people in Matthew 3, Matthew 7, Matthew 12, and again John 15. Therefore you can be very confident that likewise the warnings here in our passage are for the falsely religious persons the false converts. John the Baptist exposes those falsely religious people and John the Apostle through his gospel is doing the same today. False Christians, they do exist. They may even be among us right now, here, today, right now, in this church. Jesus and John had to endure them back then and Jesus still endures them today. They were among God's true disciples back then, and you can be pretty sure they're still around today. John mentions this in his first epistle. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain 
that they are all not of us. You see the warning? Just because false Christians keep true Christians as company, it does not make them true Christians. Sooner or later they will fall away. For a time they appear to be true Christians. For a time they appear to be a part of the flock. And then eventually, like Judas, they fall away. They do not endure to the end. By their fruit you shall know them. We all know the parable of the kingdom of God and the weeds in Matthew 13. An enemy wanted to sabotage a good wheat crop. So he secretly sowed some weeds in with the wheat. Then the wheat and the weeds began growing together. But they were growing together so tightly that if you plucked out the weeds, you could have mistakenly plucked out the weeds also. Listen to how that parable ends. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gathered the wheat into my barn. And so it is with the church of God. I can recount so many cases of people in this church and also around us, really heartbreaking, horrifying testimonies of people who claim to be believers. They walk the walk and talk the talk externally and mostly, I must add, seem to be everything you would expect from a believer. I add mostly because scripture teaches that there will be fruit. There will be those bad fruit. But you know what? It's just so well concealed sometimes. In any event, they had everyone around them fooled completely. Relatively recently, one of my favorite, most beloved preachers, one who even had his own international ministry, perhaps reaching millions globally, was at the end of his life found to be guilty of gross sexual misconduct I am still in disbelief actually I had learned so much from that man but this man had the whole world fooled but in the end he was found out it's a frightening frightening reality of how well people can deceive others remember Judas did it right to the end We also are currently in this church dealing with the case of a person who has just decided to walk away from the church and from God and pursue a lifestyle that they secretly always craved. And when they were confronted, their attitude is like, yeah, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm just unwilling to obey. They have been in fellowship with us for so long. And for the longest time seemed genuinely converted, but they could not hold up the pretense for too long. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they are all not of us. In conclusion, I want to tell every true branch here today, Every born-again believer, every Christian, remember, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you 
now live in the flesh in these few short years you have left you live by faith in the son of god who loved you and gave himself for you know your identity and be real be exactly who you are you are in christ so be full with the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ to the glory and praise of god and so i charge you christian press on abide in christ fight the good fight finish the race keep the faith there is laid up for you the crown of righteousness which the lord the righteous judge will award to you on that day and not only to you but also to all who have loved his appearing this 2 timothy 4 7 and 8 now to those of you who may be false observers spectator christians false christians you who are profess- professors of faith but not possessors of faith and dare I say it judas type branches i appeal to you also god's wrath is upon you and will remain on you for all eternity jesus is warning us here and in many many other passages throughout the bible that there is a coming judgment and let me tell you every unbeliever who scoffs at these warnings will in the end learn that god is no liar but there is hope <laughs> there is hope if you would repent of your sins repent of your religious pretending and turn to the lord jesus christ in faith you will be saved believe in the gospel of jesus christ jesus life death and resurrection can be yours if you repent and trust him today jesus says all the father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out john 6:37 this is god's gracious invitation but it comes with an expiry date and i trust you will respond before it's too late may god bless you as you work to our hearts today